And here we have the second episode of Darmage, and I'm super happy to have as a guest Sean Bartone, who is the founder of the Engage blog and now the Engage podcast, which I am thrilled to say will also be hosting and uh, I, I guess um, disseminating this very podcast that we're taping right now together. So welcome, Sean. Thank you. Welcome, Tanya. So uh, I guess to get started with everything, this is, you know, like I said, the second podcast, and my tradition has really been to kind of figure out how people got into this whole Buddhist thing. So how did the Buddhist bug bite you? When did it start, uh, and, and what kind of uh, evoked this in you? Okay, well, that's, a, that's a great question. Actually, it started really um, when I went to Canada from you know, 2009. Um, I moved to Fredericton, New Brunswick I, as a permanent resident, and um, I think it was the shift out of my usual milieu and set, you know, comfortable, familiar surroundings into a strange place. I mean, Canada is not that different from the United States, but it is different. I mean, there's a different, it's a slightly different culture, you know? And so I think it was a bit of the move and the culture shock that prompted me to feel like, hey, I feel like I'm kind of spinning here and, and not very, uh, uh, I, I feel like I just need to some support or maybe, maybe I need to learn how to meditate. That's what I thought to myself. And um, someone had told me that uh, Shambhala had a um, uh, shrine uh, in um, Fredericton, New Brunswick, and, so, and that they taught meditation on Wednesday nights. So I went there and I learned how to meditate. And uh, the Shambhala technique of meditation really worked for me. Um, and I had tried meditation many times before. Uh, transcendental meditation, uh, Christian meditation, um, you know, yogi style. I mean, you know, because I had done yoga for about five years before I started this. Just like nothing really worked. And, um, but the Shambhala method did work. Um, and I, so I caught it somehow. And... Um, so I started going on Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night and sitting with a group, which I think is also very important is because you, you know, you know, you start to get the, uh, social support and you start to internalize, uh, a lot of the teaching and the practice almost on a nonverbal level, just by being with other people. Mm. Um, and then after about a year, I was able to establish a, some kind of a, a regular practice at home. And I started noticing that it had a profound effect on um, on my mental health, truthfully. Um, I mean, I'd already been uh, sober and in recovery for 18 years. And also had been looking for something more in terms of my recovery um, and just couldn't find it. I tried all sorts of different, you know, spiritualities and practices and kind of nothing really worked. I saw... Um, but the meditation just took, it worked. And, um, and so then I, you know, um, I, all I did for the first couple of years was meditate. I didn't, I was a PhD student at the university of New Brunswick in sociology, and I didn't have time for anything else. I just had time to just go once a week and meditate. Um, and then, um, I moved to Halifax in 2013, 2014 to teach at Dalhousie university in the school of social work. And, you know, I really thought that I was just going to be in Halifax for about 
you know, for my eight month gig. And then that was going to be it. I was going to go back to Fredericton. Well, I just never left actually, <laughs> you know, I've been here ever since. And so the first year that I was in Halifax, I thought, well, you know what? Um, here I am in Halifax. This is like the epicenter of the Shambhala world. I might as well take advantage of whatever there is here um, while I'm here because I'm going back to Fredericton soon enough. So I just did a whole, I did blitz the whole year of courses and retreats. I got up to level five and the retreat schedule. I did two or three courses and then, uh, you know, and I was just, I really wanted to learn the Dharma. I really, really wanted to learn the Dharma. Um, so I had read every book Pema Chodron ever wrote by that time. And I had also done a lot of explorations in combining uh, recovery and Buddhism, you know, the 12 steps in Buddhism. So that was a big item for me. Um, so um, so at the, end of the, at the end of that eight month period, you know, I, was able to, I had done my refuge vow in Fredericton at the Shambhala in Fredericton mm -hmm. and decided to go ahead with the uh, uh, Bodhisattva vow mm -hmm. in, um, in, in Halifax. So I did that. And then at that point, you know, I really knew that I didn't want to go any further with Shambhala because my feeling was that I wasn't learning Dharma. I was learning different kinds of meditation practices, mm. but I wasn't learning the Dharma. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I have an education as a lawyer. I want to read the text. I want to read the sutras. You know what I mean? Gotcha. It's, to me, you know, so, um, so I thought, well, you know, I'm, while I'm still here in Halifax, I might as well go to Nalanda Bodhi because they have uh, a little group here mm -hmm. in a shrine room. So I signed up for a year of what they call Hinayana or foundational Buddhism mm -hmm. and did that. And, you know, got to know a little bit about Melinda Bodhi. Um, the, their meditation techniques really kind of didn't work for me as well as Chambala. Mm. Um, so it, that was not really the attraction. It was more about being able to study the Dharma. And so they had a really thorough um, course, set of courses, actually, mm -hmm. that were um, very affordable and accessible. Um, but at the end of the year, I just decided that, you know, this kind of doesn't work for me either. And, um, I, and, and just, just to sort of put, uh, put, put the, to kind of nail it, it's just that I found that Nalanda Bodhi had a teaching on emptiness that was really extreme. Okay. I and mean, it was quite extreme. I mean, even though it's a Zogchen tradition and Zogchen tends to emphasize emptiness, um, as a chief teaching, mm -hmm. like even, even among Dzogchen teachers, it was really extreme okay. because I've since, you know, studied from or read from other Dzogchen teachers. It just was, it didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, and, um, so I felt like, okay, this is not working. Where do I go now? Um, actually read a book. I was really just right at that point. I, I was trying to decide like, should I go out on my own? Am I ready to go out on my own and just do it myself? Yeah. Or do I still need a group? So this has been an ongoing question for me the whole time. And me. <laughs> um, I was really, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And me too. So I, think, um, yeah. I read, a, yeah, I read, a, I was about to just quit the whole thing, frankly. Oh. And I read a book by um, the 17th Karmapa called um, The Heart is Noble. Oh, okay. 
And I was just ready to just throw in the towel. And I read this book and it just kind of grabbed me by the neck and pulled me out of the water hmm. and just said, okay, he's, what he said in the book to summarize it is you can practice Buddhism as a humanist spirituality. Okay. Wow. And you don't have to practice Buddhism as a traditional religion. You can practice as a and um, as, as an engaged spirituality, which is like, you know, right. I was right on with that. And and he said, and he said, if you really want to go further in this, is more than just a philosophy. Uh, here's my advice: don't join a, a sangha or a church, a Buddhist organization. Right. This is what he said. Wow. Don't join a Buddhist organization. <laughs> Find a few friends who will support you in what you're doing. And that's more important. And it's about the intimacy, this real emotional support that you get from your friends. Right. So um, anyway, so it just kind of like, OK, I think I, I can keep going here. You know, mm. I can keep going. And at the same time, uh, there was a. Sri Lanka, uh, a, a community from Sri Lanka, which in, is called Sinhalese or the Sinhala, mm-hmm. um, who had been in Halifax for 25 years, but they never had um, a temple of their own. And they, at that year, for the first time, uh, had a, a new young monk had come from Sri Lanka uh, by way of Toronto. And this was kind of sort of the rebirth of their community. I went to their uh, Buddha uh, uh, day at, mm-hmm. uh, in May um, and met him and met the community. And I was very interested in Theravada. I was always interested in Theravada. Hmm. Uh, but there was no Theravada around. Everything was Tibetan, right? So, um, so in the course of that year, having this new young monk, the community put it together and they bought uh, a temple. They bought a church, a uh, uh, in um, in Herring Cove, just outside of Halifax. Okay. So I went to uh, the Sri Lankan community, and I was frequently the only white Westerner in the sangha in, in the in the organization on any given day. Maybe there'd be two or three people, but the rest of them were the Sri Lankan or the Sinhalese community, and. Um, but I loved it. I loved it. I loved the the uh, the chanting. I loved the focus on the Pali Canon. Mm. Um, I loved the approach, Theravada approach to Buddhism. Um, and I also really liked um, the Sri Lankan sort of take on it because, and I, I mean, I could be wrong, but it seems like in 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 Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan approach is even different from the Thai forest approach and mm. the Burmese approach in that it's a little more modern, contemporary. It's, um, there's more of a balance of power between the monks and the laity. Mm. Um, and it's just beside the, the Sri Lanka is, is not only the site of the oldest, one of the oldest Buddhist traditions in the world, but it's also the location, the origin of one of the newest, which is Buddhist modernism. Mm-hmm. Buddhist modernism really got started in Sri Lanka. And I consider myself to be a modernist, you know? And so I have stayed with the Sri Lankan tradition ever since. Um, in fact, when I went back to Massachusetts to visit my family uh, in Worcester, Mass, uh, right outside of Worcester, Mass, is another Sri Lankan temp- uh, temple. 
And I go there when I'm in Massachusetts, I go there. So that's kind of like my tradition now. Um, I read a lot of Stephen Batchelor's stuff mm -hmm. and I really like early Buddhism. I really like secular Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I like Theravada very much. Um, but it, I also have Mahayana perspectives. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of Theravada with a Mahayana perspective. That's the way I, I look at it. And, um, yeah, so uh, I, f I like the kind of modern modern Theravada. That's kind of that's that's what I've been practicing, and you know, um, that kind of. And then, see, in the meantime, also I also discovered Tri Ratna, which is mm. uh, out of the UK, and and that came about because they have Tri Ratna gender diverse Buddhists mm -hmm. and. Um, so being transgender myself, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere, you know. Mm. And um, so Triratna, so there's kind of this dual thing. Like Triratna is mostly based in the UK, so it's not really here in North America very mm -hmm. much, except in uh, there's a, there's a, a, a retreat center in, in uh, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, so I... Um, I liked Tri Ratna because basically it's based in Theravada. Uh, the founder, Sangharachita, was a Theravada monk, okay, a British Theravada monk, who then also studied with Tibetan lamas, and he also studied Chan. And so Tri Ratna has this kind of same thing of like having a base or a foundation in Theravada, but also drawing on Mahayana traditions mm -hmm. and perspectives. So that kind of works for me too. Cool. So, well, it sounds like yeah. you've sampled from quite a few plates and it seems, I don't know, I've yeah. always heard like just with, you know, my own training, it's been like find something and cling to it and stick to it and that's how it goes in Buddhism. But mm -hmm. you sound like somebody who's successfully been able to kind of sample the buffet and kind of roll your own dharma without fear of like risk repercussion or missing out on, you know, what the cool sangha is doing or any of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I really like the, the suttas. One of the things um, that they kind of surprised me is after a whole year of studying with Nalanda Bodhi on so-called Hinayana or foundational Buddhism, was we never read the suttas. Mm. And I'm like, how could you not read the suttas? I mean, mm. and, and, and when I read this, I started reading the Dhammapada, which is a, a wonderful collection of, of Buddhist teachings and I started reading the sutras, you know, in English, and it's all available online in English at Access to Insight. You can read it yourself, mm -hmm. and you know, it's like, you know what? There's, it, it's just so simple. Like, why does people make Buddhism so complicated? Mm -hmm. It's really so simple. If you start reading the sutras, you appreciate the simple yet profound wisdom of the Buddha and the early Buddhists, and it's like. It's completely accessible. It's completely understandable. There's nothing mystical about it or, or simple but effective ideas. And uh, so it's like, you know, this is kind of like, and it's kind of DIY Buddhism, right? You can read it yourself. You don't need anybody to teach you or interpret it for you. It helps to have someone that you can discuss it with or books you can read about. But basically, you can read the suttas yourself and you can get it, you know? So um, this one thing I, 
Yeah. Do you think in, in some cases, like, I mean, I, not to be like the, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, there's sometimes, I mean, and, and you're active online in some ways. So, you know, sometimes you come across people and, and they get, you know, an idea in their head. And sometimes those people, you know, they, they may have a, I would never want to say somebody's version of the Dharma is wrong or anything, but sometimes you see people and, you know, just like with it being like, um, you know, the idea of Christ told me this is right and this is how it is. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so a misinterpretation or a misperception of the Dharma or, you know, using it in a certain way that it's like, whoa, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> that's out there, <laughs> you know. So yeah. do, do you see like, um, I guess, more of like the community itself kind of keeping not really putting somebody like that in check, but just making sure that somebody who may, you know, maybe it's mental illness or maybe it's unchecked ego or maybe it's who knows what, but to make sure somebody's not a harm yeah. to others or themselves by getting, you know. Oh, in other words, think about it's like that. being self-taught. Like, do you, do you think maybe that being self, that there are risks in being self-taught? I'm wondering that about that, asking? that, you know, yeah. just as everything kind of like, you know, has the potential for a great, you know, you know, the idea of self-taught and, and boom, you know, enlightenment or boom, you're a happy person and you live well mm -hmm. and all's good. Mm -hmm. um, that risk of, you know, self-taught also possibly in the wrong hands as being something that, you know, mm -hmm. could be damaging to the person or, or yeah. to their community. Yeah. I mean, I think there's ways that you can misinterpret. Um, I, but then, you know, I, I have mean, to I'm say, I, I guess, I'm, yeah, I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm sort of leaning the other way. Mm. I feel like you can actually be harmed quite a bit by mm. supposedly, uh, you know, uh, trained and certified and, and authoritative teachers who tell you that this is what Buddhism, Buddhism is. And you're going like, huh, I don't think so. And, you know, that doesn't work for me or I, that's not what I see or what I experience. Yeah. And, you know, what I mean, so I've had more of that experience, actually. I, I've, I've actually gone through and using the suttas and using the teachings and books and research I've done have gone ahead and sort of, you know, um, come up with my own explanation or version of what does Pratitya Samudpada mean, mm. you know, what dependent origination what uh, what is what is karma and rebirth all about? You know that the big like most people really can't even accept uh, karma and rebirth as a as a doctrine. What's that all about? Mm. You know what's you know what's emptiness? What's impermanence? I've I've struggled and worked through each of these things on my own. Yeah. And um and I'm much happier with what I came up with than anybody else. You yeah. know. And that I'm, seems to be yeah. quite a bit of it is finding, you know, a dharma that works for you, whether it is, you know, the teacher led or your your own individual way. Because in a lot of ways it is like, you know, one of one of the main things is like asking questions. And it seems like, you know, right. there are certain traditions we've mentioned where it is like ask questions, ask questions. But right. has there been resistance to some of the questions you've been asking in these communities? Yeah, well, um, I guess there's been a lot of, I've had a lot of issues. Like I said, the, the, the question of emptiness um, in Nalanda Bodhi was just beyond what I could, I simply couldn't accept it. I mean, it's okay if they preach that or they teach it or they practice it, whatever. But mm. I mean, they, they were actually teaching that um, you don't actually exist, like in a real physical sense. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I know that, you know, like physically I'm here. All right. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, 
how you interpret self may vary a lot, but that doesn't mean that I'm not physically existent here. Mm. Okay. Um, so, um, but there again, you see, and, and sort of to sift all the way through this, I've basically become what I call a Buddhist materialist. Mm. Um, and, and that's in a, in a sort of an exaggeration for effect and to, to exaggeration to make a point. But the point is that I really think that, uh, science and my own living experience tells me that there's a material reality to the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that we need to sort of like, that has to be part of the, the deal. That has to be part of what you are dealing with. And I find a lot more support for that in the early Buddhist Pali Canon than I do in later Mahayana and tantric teachings. Mm. So I, I find the Theravada uh, and the Pali very grounded in material reality. This kind of also probably comes into play with you're your quite interested in the environmentalist movement too. Yes. So science and existence and existence of an environment kind of also exactly. probably come into play. Exactly. So yeah, I'm a, I call myself a Buddhist materialist and, and um, you know, I think a lot of ways that uh, things like emptiness have been interpreted, have, I think, are, I mean, of course, this, this has been debated for thousands of years and it's mm -hmm. going to continue to be debated. Uh, but like, for instance, the idea that said, because you have no self, this is what I was taught in land body, because you have no self, that means that you don't exist. But that's actually a logical fallacy when you think about it, mm -hmm. because what the Buddha said is self is, is an illusion, right? Mm -hmm. But he didn't say that you physically don't exist. You, you have the five skandhas, right? You have five yep. bundles of stuff yep. that you are made of. Okay. So to say, if, if you say that self does not exist, that does not wipe out the entire entity that you are as, a, as an entity, as a being. It's just saying self is a delusion. It's an mm. illusion. It's illusionary. Yeah. But all the other elements that make up you, your body, your senses, your perception, your consciousness, they're all still there. Mm. Okay? So there's a way change. that... And subject to change. Right. So, yeah. so I mean, that's, that's kind of where... Um, things kind of, this is where I, I, I split with certain factions of Buddhism and said, no, I'm, I'm going this way. It's toward Theravada. It's toward grounded in material reality, but understanding that everything is impermanent. Everything mm. is interconnected. Everything is interdependent. And, you know, um, and the other thing too is my other experiences is, is I really uh, sort of came into Buddhism in a very particular and profound way. And when I was I was reading, a, I was studying for my dissertation in systems theory, and I read uh, Joanna Macy's book, Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory. Hmm. And now at this point, I wasn't I was barely a Buddhist. If any, I wasn't even really a Buddhist. I was learning how to meditate, and I read that book, and I had a profound awakening. That was my awakening reading that book, Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's all about interdependence, mm. okay? It's all about interconnectedness. The, and, and of course, it's in, about the environment. And, and Joanna Macy is a champion of, of, of the environment and, and engaged Buddhism. Um, so that was a profound experience for me. And I find, when I read that book, I realized that I was connected to everything in the universe and everything on this planet, and that I not only was connected to it, but I was personally responsible for it. Mm. Because what I did, what I do has an effect on everything around me, systemically, 
personally, interpersonally, and across the entire planet. And so everything I do has an effect, and therefore I am responsible. Okay? So, um, and I've had many experiences like that in with that particular dharma and that particular tradition of more Theravada, although some somewhat Mahayana tradition, of profound experiences of interconnectedness and had many what you could even call mystical experiences, hmm. you know, you know, uh, because of this and this profound sense of connection to everything, you know. So, um, so that's been my continuing uh, practice. That's excellent. And do you feel like, I guess, your path has kind of been like a series of stepping stones in some ways that you kind of started out like, you know, uh, Shambhala is kind of quite, for me anyway, my experience was that it was quite esoteric and it, you know, was quite grounding in the meditation, like a lot of meditation (laughs) and emphasis Mm -hmm. on meditation and learning meditation Mm -hmm. and sitting. and, and just kind of going along and, and what you're describing to me sounds like very much like an intellectualist approach of kind of passing through, you know, and, and, and learning more about yourself and the world as you are kind of investigating and kind of like spiritual archaeology or, you know, or, or whatever, yeah. whatever it is that you're kind of like, it's almost like an anthropologist approach versus exactly. just sit down and take what's being given and, you know, digested as what I, you know, understand versus, you know, what are all of these different cultures and all of these different ways of looking at it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I def- I'm a social scientist. I've been studying and practicing sociology for almost 30 years. So mm. yes, I definitely take a social science approach to Buddhism and um, I'm an intellectual. Yes. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm proud of that's what I am. And um, I'm really interested in the text. I'm interested in the, in the, in the, the Buddhist scriptures. And I'm also under, inter, interested in understanding both the text and the practice from the point of view of uh, anthropologically from where it was founded in, um, you know, northern India 2,500 years ago in the context of the religions of the day, which includes, um, you know, uh, the Brahmana, the, 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 the Brahminic religion and the Shramana and uh, like, and the, 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 the Rig Veda and the Upanishads and the whole culture that gave birth to this uh, this uh, this lineage or this this philosophy, this practice, um, because it's steeped in Indian culture and Indian history. And I love South Asian Buddhism. Um, mm. That's just what I gravitated to ultimately with South Asian Indian and Sri Lankan Buddhism. So it's steeped in that culture. And so to understand the origins of where it came from became very important to me um, in sort of sorting out my beliefs and practices. Yeah, so it is an intellectual approach, and that's just how I am. It's something I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, just in the era that we're in right now, in the Trump era of, like, you know, Mm -hmm. intellectuals, and there seems to be now a combination of heart-oriented and and kind of, like, intellectuals that have been able to kind of tap into this kind of, like, suffering <laughs> you know like uh-huh. this, this mm-hmm. kind of sense of like shit's going down shit's getting mm-hmm. real people are in pain people are being persecuted people are mm-hmm. like you know we need to look to people that 
know both that aren't just all in their head, but also have been able to touch into their heart. So are, right. are, are you seeing kind of more of that happening within, you know, academia, which is traditionally like head only? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, it, you know, if, if I was head only, then I wouldn't, why, why would you bother being a Buddhist? You could just study sociology and, and science, and you could just go about your psychology, and you could just go about your life that way. Um, but what Buddhism really offers, in addition to all that human wisdom, is the, the so-called heart practices or the ethics, the mm. ethics of sense of responsibility and a desire to heal, to relieve suffering, to heal, to improve the lives, one's own life and the lives of people around you, to improve the conditions of the world so that what can be born into the world isn't better than what was born into the world before because mm. everything is predicated on conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of my theory of karma and rebirth is that what we're doing is we're creating uh, improved or better social conditions, more compassionate, humane uh, social conditions so that future generations will be reborn into a better set of conditions and thereby have uh, become more well-developed and happier human beings. Okay. So if you were so my, grade, my idea, yeah. If you were to grade Buddhists right now, how would you say they're doing? <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. It's like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've also always, always been in, involved in engaged Buddhism, and mm. and that's part of why I started my blog, Engage, um, when I went to uh, Shambhala's course on, um, you know, enlightened society. I would, that, that was going to be my thing. I was really interested in that. And I only I found their teaching on enlightened society to be pretty strange. And to me as a sociologist, it didn't make any sense at all. So, um, you know, but I said, you know what, I can do this, right? You know, I mean, I'm new, I'm fairly new to Buddhism, and but I'm still learning. And but I know a heck of a lot about society. You know? mm. And I know a heck of a lot about en engagement, because I've been doing social justice, uh, and activist been, I've been an activist all, basically all my life. So, you know, I have enough going on here that I should start putting this together, start putting, start putting together what I'm learning about Buddhism with what I already know about society and engagement and activism and craft this blog called engaged, uh, called engaged, which is engagedbuddhism.net. Um, and so I've been writing this blog now for, geez, I think it's three, I think it's like three years now. Um, and um, it's been growing and changing and morphing. And, and uh, um, as I've learned more about Buddhism and I've been able to put to interpret the Dharma in a particular way. Um, so, yeah. And so now we're in this situation in the Trump era where I'm afraid that some people that have only understood Buddhism from a strictly personal point of view of, you know, what they can do to help themselves, which is totally okay. Um, cause I do that too. <laughs> you know, I have to take care of me. Uh, but if that's the only thing that, that Buddhism is going to do for you, then you have no skills whatsoever to cope with what's coming out of Washington right now, uh, which is basically a fascist dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, I've been what I've been trying to do with the blog is basically again. It's the, one thing I've discovered about 
contemporary Buddhism in North America is it's kind of this bubble, right? Mm -hmm. So you go into the bubble and all you hear is Buddhism and all you see and experience is something related to Buddhism and the rest of the world is completely absent. Like it's just like blanked out and you have no sense of connection. It's almost this kind of dissociation from your usual kind of environment. And, um, that's what I call the bubble. And mm. I, that was something that I struggled with early on. It's like, I just, this just doesn't feel real to me. There's something kind of delusional about this. And, um, you know, so what I did with the blog is like, okay, so look, this is Buddhism and this is the world. Okay. And we're going to put the two of them together in one place. Okay. Called engage. Mm. Right. So when you go to this blog, you're not going to be in the bubble because you're going to be confronted with stuff that has to do with the world as it is today. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and I don't necessarily in every single blog post explain all the connections between a Dharma approach and the world, mm. but in a sense of just by putting juxtaposing these two things in a blog, I'm actually inviting my readers to do that. Okay. To sort of, confront reality, the world situation as it is, with what they bring to it in terms of their dharma understanding and practice, right? So to do that themselves, every time you read something in the blog, I invite my readers to sort of think about this stuff and think about how you approach this as a Buddhist. Now, sometimes I do that too, and I write my own articles mm -hmm. and my own blog pieces about, you know, this is what I think about, you know, the environment, or this is what I think about, uh, a certain kind of activism, or this is what I think about, you know, the Trump regime or whatever, you know, any number of possible topics about racism, white supremacy, mm -hmm. about gender. Um, so, um, you know, I have certain, and, and the other thing that I cover in the blog, which I think almost nobody covers anywhere is economics. Mm. Okay. Which is something that, you know, um, it's, it's, it's vitally, it, it's critical to the way our society is structured. It's structured around an economic system. Okay. And if you want to do engage Buddhism, but you have no concept of how this economic system is structured and how it works, then you're going to be constantly up against something that you do not understand and that you can have no effect on. And so, um, Buddhism itself Contemporary Buddhism almost has like no language or conceptual framework for dealing with economics, which is basically how our whole world, human world, is, is structured around our global economic capitalist system, mm. right? So, so you just like you have to understand that if you're going to actually take any sort of action or approach that's going to be effective. Um, so I, I I try to sort of champion that in that in my blog and say all right, this is one Buddhist blog you're going to come to where we, I'm going to talk about economics. I'm going to talk about capitalism, okay? I'm going to talk about worker exploitation. I'm going to talk about um, how the whole world is structured around the idea of property, private property, and, and wealth, and, you know, and basically how the Buddha eliminated, destroyed any concept of private property, okay? Mm. He himself did. Like, he walked out of his, his palace with everything that he left behind, everything that he owned and everything that he was going to inherit and uh, whatever wealth one could obtain at that time and status and privilege and power. And he walked away from the entire thing. Okay. 
and he gave up on the whole concept of private property. He owned nothing but a clothes on his back and a begging bowl. Okay. Mm. So, and it's too bad that I said, if you really want to take engaged Buddhism to its most profound effect, like let's start teaching people that we don't need to own anything. Mm. <laughs> you don't need to own anything. Truthfully, if, if we can share and cooperate and, and um, some, what some people are trying to do now is establish a sharing or cooperative mm -hmm. economy where people, you don't necessarily own things that you need to use. You share them. Okay. Yeah. You rent them, you share them, you cooperate. It's a cooperative economy. So that's to me, that's where Buddhism could go to have a really profound effect on the whole way that this uh, global system is structured on private property it's and exploiting. It's interesting because yeah. what you're describing in terms of the sharing economy and, and what you're describing as, you know, what you're talking about to me sounds a lot like it requires a lot of trust, a lot of trust in yes. fellow humanity. And sure does. wouldn't a Sangha be the ideal place for, <laughs> you know, that exactly. to be practiced? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The sharing economy and the cooperative economy is based on trust and if you, uh, Buddhism is a, it is in one sense, a set of ethical behaviors that generates trust. Because if you follow the precepts and you practice a life of non-self in the sense of not putting yourself first and being interconnected with everyone else, um, then you are a trustworthy person. Mm. You're trustworthy. And therefore it's safe for me to share and cooperate with you because I know I can trust you. Mm. So, um, so that's one of the ways I actually wrote a paper on that. And I have a list of papers I've published, um, that basically, uh, trust is, is one of the ways, um, that Buddhism, uh, can, could really actually, we could actually radically restructure mm. our economy based on trust, cooperation and sharing through a Buddhist from, from a Buddhist perspective. That is incredible. And that would profoundly, uh, radically change the entire system, including the way we, ex we would stop exploiting nature and our environmental resources. We would stop exploiting workers. We would stop exploiting women and their uh, caretaking labor. Um, we would stop, you know, discriminating between people um, because the Buddha was totally against racism of any kind, mm. casteism, which is also what we call today racism. Um, you know, uh, so... Yeah, there's so many profound ways that we could really, that Buddhism could really alter the system if we took it that radical approach. Mm. It's interesting, too, because a lot of what I've been encountering lately just in this new Trump era, I keep calling it, but I don't even mm. want to call it an era, but mm. <laughs> I don't want to give it that, just this Trumpism. Um, it's been a lot of discomfort, a lot of discomfort with myself, a lot of discomfort with what's going on, a lot of uneasiness. Mm. And it's funny because... In Buddhism, you're kind of, you know, a lot of it is, you know, you're taught to kind of sit with that, rest with that, yes. consider yeah. it, you know, marinate in it, you know, um, let it go, let it go. So what what do you think about that in the sense of are Buddhists kind of in a good position to kind of face what's going down and what's happening, you know, if, or are we just kind of yeah. still in our cocoons and our bubbles and no? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of North American 
American Buddhism is what I call bubble Buddhism. Mm. It's very escapist. It's very much avoiding um, the world, um, except just whatever I can cope with on my own day-to-day basis. Um, yeah, it's very much the bubble. And it's all to the idea is to sort of not feel any pain. Mm. The idea, there's a way of interpreting, uh, an end to suffering to say uh, that I should not feel any pain, I should not feel any discomfort, and if I do, then then I'm not practicing right. I'm pr- I'm doing mm. it wrong, you know. Um, and I totally do not take I I take a completely uh, ulterior uh, position on that, and that's because um, I take the position that what we have to do is not cause ourselves or anyone else extra suffering other than the usual sort of difficulty of being alive. Um, and that we have to face reality. Mm. We have to, to me, Buddhism was all about facing reality. Yeah. And I don't understand this thing of sort of flipping it over to the other side of like escaping reality and sort of transcending into this blissful emptiness, Mm. you know, it just, it just doesn't work for me. And, 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 you know, uh, yeah, it's all about facing reality, but realizing that I cannot do anything by myself, and I have to tell myself this all the time. Whenever I'm working on an issue of social justice or, let's say, facing the Trump regime, I cannot change anything. Mm-hmm. We can change things. We together can change things. Where do you um, think it starts in the sense of, you know, with with Buddhists, because a lot of what I see is a lot of really well-intentioned people, and and it's not just Buddhist. I think anybody that right now has has a heart or a desire or, or a fear of what's coming down, mm-hmm. there's so many options to get involved. You know, right. even right. in Canada, we're like, oh my gosh, there's this group and there's this group and there's this. So, right. seeing all of this, what would you recommend, like you know, as a okay. place to get started? Okay. What I would, uh, first of all, what I would say is never do anything by yourself. Okay. Mm. Because we're dealing with a very, very dangerous regime here. And and I'm also speaking because I have family in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I'm familiar with the U S scenario right now, Mm. very dangerous regime. And so never do anything alone, do everything with a group. The affinity group is a really good model Mm -hmm. of, you know, getting your friends or people that you trust a small group that you, that you can count on together to, to take an action together and you decide what it is that you think you can handle. Okay. If you can handle calling your representatives to, to demand certain things on certain issues, great. Or if you can, um, go to a a march or a demonstration or a rally or a vigil, great. Um, you know, if you can sign a petition or, um, you know, uh, send a letter or an email to somebody that's all excellent. In fact, uh, you know, those are all highly effective, you know? Um, but you decide with your group what it is you think you can handle because I, you know, getting arrested at this time would be super dangerous. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and certain people are going to do that, but you know, most people are not in a position to be able to do that. So work with a group and realize that we are going to solve this problem together. Okay. Um, but also when you get in with a, so let's say you go into a large, uh, mass protest of some kind, um, you also have to be careful of the crowd mentality because, um, people will be in a state of agitation and fear and, and, um, uh, and, you know, sort of reactive, highly reactive mm-hmm. mode. 
and the crowd will push you or allow you to do things that you would never do on your own. Mm. Okay. And that's the whole psychology of being with the crowd. The psychology of the crowd is you will do things with a crowd that you would never have the courage to do alone. Okay. And usually that's good, but there's also times when that can be very dangerous. So you also have to know how to pull out of the crowd when the crowd is doing something that you feel would be a danger to yourself mm. and not something that you're prepared to handle. Okay. Mm -hmm. So back out or be with your check with your affinity group and make sure that you're ready, that you've agreed what it is that you are going to do that you're capable of doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say that in terms of the number we're getting hit from every possible angle, um, with this administration mm -hmm. and to pick a couple of things that I've, what I've done is I'm picking a couple of things that I can focus on, uh, that I'm taking action on where, um, I call uh, the White House or I call my representative, my senator, my mm -hmm. representative, or, you know, um, I send an email on something. So taking action, right? But I can only do that on a couple of issues. Like there aren't enough hours in the day or days yeah. in the week to take action like that on everything. So, but then otherwise what I'm doing is um, I am uh, what I call tweeting the resistance Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm tweeting the resistance. I'm, I use Twitter. That's my main social media cause I hate Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, what I'm doing is I'm only tweeting those things that show the resistance to the Trump regime mm. to show what we can do, what we can accomplish. And that, and it's, and it's all positive. Right. And so there's two reasons why I chose to do that. One is because to, I refuse to tweet anything that has to do with what Donald Trump said or did today. Yeah. Okay. I don't care. Okay. What the white house says or the press secretary or whatever, it's all baloney anyhow. Mm -hmm. So I don't give him that pulpit. I don't give him that, you know, I don't give him that platform. Mm -hmm. Okay. I only tweet what it is that we are doing in response to resist it. Okay. Because I don't want to give him the power. And also because it's positive stuff that is good for my mental health, mm. right? To show that we can do something, we have power, we can be effective together, we can change things. Mm. And so this is this is the approach I'm taking, you know, to this to this situation. And it is that engagement, like very much the title of your blog, in the sense of yeah. you know, engaging in the world and engaging with what you're seeing and determining like where where you need yeah. to kind of dig in. So mm -hmm. no, that's, yeah. that's helpful because it can feel very overwhelming. And I think sometimes, you know, with a, uh, with a big hearted Buddhist out there, you know, feeling mm -hmm. like alone in the world, sometimes it's like almost the sense of burnout. And I think this government wants that. <laughs> Absolutely. The whole thing they're doing is basically what they're trying to do is shock and, and frighten people. That's the whole, it's, it's to just com so completely overwhelm you that you would so just kind of give up. And, you know, it's kind of like, I, I kind of explain it to myself, it's kind of like a horror film. Yeah. Like, um, and in the beginning, like these dark and weird things are happening. And every once in a while, something dark, weird and strange and slightly violent will happen. And you're like, oh, and then as the movie progresses, it gets worse and worse and worse. And the, the event the events become more violent and graphic and shocking and awful 
And it just keeps getting worse until the climax of the film is the most shocking, awful, violent, and disgusting thing you could possibly imagine. And that's basically how horror films are structured, which is basically what the Trump regime is doing. But They're is there, doing this, yeah. Is there also the fear of it being normal, that we're eventually going to see these horrific things and just go, oh, another day, you know, for right. for people to just kind of go, well, this is, you know, I, I was in a taxi last week and, and living here in Quebec, we had... Uh, several Muslim men that were mm. massacred by a terrorist and mm. I got in my cab and it was an Iranian taxi driver and I just I started crying and I said I'm so mm. sorry and he said mm. that's how it is madame that's you know this is how the world is and I just mm. felt like to him this was normal and to me mm. this is just I'm witnessing the most abhorrent thing I could ever imagine happening yeah. In Canada. Yeah. So, mm. you know, while it is, I get the horror aspect, I worry that we may start to kind of become acclimatized horror. That's why it's... Uh, exactly, exactly. What we want to do, you, you also um, need to pull back and not... You need to disengage mm. periodically and give yourself an emotional, psychological break. Meditate, absolutely meditate on a daily basis. Do yoga... Um, do fun stuff, do art. I'm a musician, so I like to make music. You know, create, nurture yourself, okay? And then and go back and, and deal with it again. Um, because it's the long haul that matters. Um, I mean, if, if we're lucky, we'll get enough Democrats in, in the Congress in, by 2018 to start an impeachment process, but it's pretty iffy. Um, so we're looking at four years of this and you have to think about things over the long haul and prepare yourself to like do what you can select, select the issues you want to work on, work with a group that supports you. Right. And do that stuff. Also take care of yourself and detach, de-engage, disengage and, um, do what you need to do to take care of yourself because this is going to be a long struggle. So it's, it's the long haul that matters, you know. It sounds like you need a second blog, which is disengage. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> to recommend some uh, some of the healing and some of that uh, art therapy yeah. and music and all the good stuff to keep us going. Yeah, actually, the blog actually doesn't. Uh, I, I, always, I always cover the arts because mm. I, I love the arts. Um, I, um, I don't cover queer issues so much, although I'm very obviously very involved in that. Um, so my, my guilty pleasure is drag. I love to go to drag shows. And um, that's kind of like my sort of release and fun night out is mm. going to a drag show. Uh, and I'm a musician. And, um, yeah, so my blog features poetry. It features music. It features arts uh, by sort of Buddhistic or Dharmistic uh, artists, poets, musicians, and whatever. Um, so yeah, that's all part of it too. Culture is, is extremely important. Culture nourishes and heals and feeds us, you know? Are you seeing a lot, I guess, in terms of art and activism too happening? Like it, it's what I've been seeing in my networks are people that are deciding to blend the two and kind of go, we can speak out in a way that hasn't been expressed, you know, to this government or, or in history, throughout history with poetry and, and music being voices yeah, yeah. for change too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's very powerful because that kind of stuff will travel faster than anything. You know, a song, uh, a, a graphic, a visual graphic of some kind, 
um, uh, a poem, a short poem, um, you know, will just make the rounds faster and, and have it have the emotional effect of lifting and energizing people, you know, um, to 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 uh, keep to heal us from the trauma that we're experiencing, and also energizes and empower us to uh, to continue to resist, you know, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So who do you recommend reading right now or checking out or watching in terms of both educating, but then in terms of the nourishing, so the engage and then the disengage? Uh, well, basically my blog is, is everything that I read, right? It's mm. what you're seeing on the blog is, is what I'm teaching myself, okay? So you get to see me teach myself stuff and then you can learn along with me, you know? Um, like I'm working a lot right now on understanding uh, internalized white supremacy mm. and racism. Black Lives Matter movement has been has had an impact on me, and I'm exploring an artist um, called Afro. Uh, his blog is called Afro Sapiophilia. Mm-hmm. Afro Sapiophile. Uh, Johnny Silvercloud. Um, he's a photographer. Um, he composes music, he's a photographer, and he's a blogger, and so I'm looking at his stuff right now. Um, so so that's kind of one of the issues I'm focusing on, and um, I'm also learning a lot about cooperative and sharing economies, mm-hmm. um, looking at what the Trump regime is basically, aside from all the horrors that they're visiting on us with immigration and Muslims and women's rights and LGBTQ rights and whatever— all that stuff. He's also completely dismantling the the, the regulatory system of the federal government mm. in every sphere: labor, housing, uh, security, state, energy, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you name it. He's completely gutting the entire federal regulatory system. And what is that for? That the only purpose of doing that is to make it easier for him and his billionaire friends to exploit. Uh, capitalism and to make them to, to get rich, to get rich mm-hmm. off of it, to make more money off what they already do, pay less taxes and, and you know, uh, to produce whatever goods they want to produce and sell uh, to make a bigger profit. So so it, there's a whole pattern of economic that's going on right now that's being set up right now that people aren't even tuned into yet. They will get tuned into it eventually. The, so, and then, I, but on the positive side, I'm looking into uh, p2p.org, um, mm-hmm. p2pfoundation.org. Uh, Michelle Bauman is a, a man's that uh, I, his work I follow a lot. Uh, commonstransition.org. But so they're, they're looking at um, the cyclical economy, um, the um, sharing economy, the p2p economy. Mm-hmm. Um, cooperatives um, and all those kinds of new new economies that are being tested and developed now that could you know really effectively replace what we have um, so I'm doing a lot of work on that cool are you seeing any parallels in, in terms of Buddhism and how you know Buddhist communities or Western Buddhism can kind of learn from this or is it kind of like you know, it's it's infused you. It's part of you. But is this more pressing, mm-hmm. or is it knit with what you're doing? 
okay, what could what could Buddhist communities learn from yeah, this process? Yeah. Uh, um, I think I th- actually think that what's going to happen is that Buddhism in North America is going to go through a profound transformation. Mm. I really don't see how any way that they that Buddhism could get through this sort of a crisis without being profoundly transformed. Mm. Okay. And the profound transformation is about dealing with the external reality of society, the external reality of the material world, okay? Which I'm talking about climate change. I've been working on environmental issues now for almost 20 years. In fact, my PhD is in environmental sociology. So I, in fact, I'm teaching environmental sociology. At St. Mary's University in Halifax, I teach environmental sociology. So we really have to start dealing with the material reality of our world, our climate, our are what we buy, eat, wear, produce, consume, and uh, and what happens with all that stuff afterwards? What are uh, you know emissions and waste and pollution and all that? So, Buddhism in North America is going to have to get profoundly awakened to the material reality of the world, its limits that there are limits to this world and to what, what we how we use it, and that we need to. Um, and so orienting ourselves to those external realities is going to change the dharma and change the practice, you know. Um, in fact, the 17th Karmapa has a new book coming out now, which I'm looking forward to reading, called Interconnected, mm. uh, which, again, is the same idea of interconnection and interdependence. Um, I haven't read it yet. He just came out with it. But that's, I think, where we're going. And, where, his, and, and where I think, yeah. His focus on environmentalism, too. He's very environmentalist, so I'm sure it speaks to you to hear somebody like that. Yeah, he's he's become one of my favorite teachers now. Um, And the thing is, too, where I see a mesh between the world and Buddhism is basically like what you and I are doing right now. Like, we're connected through the Internet. The Internet is the most profound model of interbeing and interconnectedness that we have, it's a physical model of what it means to be interconnected, okay? And my feeling is that Buddhism from this, from this, the 2000s going forward, the millennial period going forward, is that interdependence is going to become the doctrine, the paramount teaching of Buddhism is going to be interdependence. And like, I'm really into like Ethan Nickturn's interdependence project. I read, yeah, I read his book, One City. It's brilliant. Mm. It's a brilliant book on interdependence. Um, Ethan Nickturn is a guy that I look to a lot. Yeah. Um, the 17th Kappa, um, you know, Joanna Macy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the millennial generation is the generation of people who grew up with the Internet, mm. you know, and, and every generation after that will have this profound sense of interconnectedness and that's that's what's going to become the dominant Buddhist teaching, I think, for the 21st century. Beautiful. So the interconnectedness, I guess, melding with maybe a lot of the loving kindness focus that we had in the yes. generation before is just going to kind mm-hmm. of make us all super transformers. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yep. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything, I guess, else to add to close? Anything to take it full circle or anything you'd like to get into a little deeper that maybe I haven't asked or? Oh, geez. Covered um, a lot, huh? <laughs> yeah, we sure did. I'm, I'm trying. Yeah, I, 
Um, well, you definitely come on again anytime. This could be a weekly thing. Sure. <laughs> I yeah. love it. I think there's, there's a way that I think there's a way that 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 Sangha is very different for for me and for us now than it was for <laughs> years ago. Uh, so I find Sangha everywhere. Um, yep. I sit with my Sri Lankan traditional Sri Lankan group on Wednesday nights. Um, or Sunday sometime, whatever. Like once a week I'll sit with them and I'll meditate with them. That's my face-to-face group. Mm. And that's the community that I'm, I sit with, but my Sangha is on the net, mm-hmm. right? It's online, right? Yeah. I I'm I find just as much Sangha with you or with other people that I converse with through Facebook, through uh, online uh, video conference calling with BPF, Buddhist Peace mm-hmm. Fellowship. I do calls with them, One Earth Sangha. I'm working with Warner Sangha right now and developing some materials with them. We have our own, uh, they have an online teaching called Echo Sattva. I've been doing that for about a mm. year. Um, yeah. Um, Post tradition. Um, a whole bunch of blogs and sites and places where people are connecting and exchanging all ideas. You know, um, so there's the podcast, the blogs, the the video calls, you know, the internet calls. I mean, these are all ways that Sangha is happening in a completely different way than it has in the past. And that's also going to be, I think, a feature of things going forward. Why do you think, I guess, you know, I, I sometimes get blowback on this, that people are like, how can you connect with a disembodied head in an afternoon and feel nourished or feel like you're getting spiritual teachings? Or why do you think that pushback is? Is it, you know, a generational thing or is it uh, a fear? <laughs> well, I, I think it's a generational thing. Like, like, um, like I connect with trans Buddhists online. Now, where am I going to find a <laughs> group of face-to-face Buddhists that are transgender? Yeah. You know, I'd be lucky if I find one or two in the city that I live in. You know what I mean? So, you know, trans Buddhists is one of these kind of like we we connect online every couple of, you know, two or three times a year. Um, you know, Buddhist Peace Fellowship and One Earth Sangha. Um, there's not that many Buddhists that are into engage, social engagement in the environment. Mm. So in, in, in any particular location. So I have to connect with them online, mm. you know. Maybe uh, the traditional was just to look at like one sangha to rule them all, and that would meet all our needs. Whereas now, it, kind of like the diversity of our interests and our personalities mm-hmm. call us to kind of have different groups. <laughs> yeah, totally, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, and so it's like I do, I really, I always make sure that I have a, a sitting group that I sit with mm. physically every week. You know, that's what I call my face-to-face group mm. because. I find that if I sit with that group, I'm far more likely to follow up with my own daily meditation, Mm. you know, and practice. Okay. And it just feels good. It just feels good to sit in a room full of people and meditate Mm. for an hour. You know, that's great. Um, But there's so many other facets of the Dharma that I have to connect with online because it's just not, it's not in any one particular place, you know? Mm. Do you have plans to write a book? I don't know. I just, I feel like out of this discussion, it's like the one thing I'd probably tweet next to you is like, when are you writing a book? (laughs) Because there's so much that I feel like, you know, in terms of subject matter that, you know, you could be writing about, like the blog is great and everything, don't get me wrong, but Mm -hmm. it it, it seems like, you know, for people that are either looking to be activists or looking for people to kind of share their experience of how 
they've been able to kind of roll their own dharma or DIY dharma in their own way mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. provided them with something meaningful and, you know, didn't end up a horror story <laughs> of uh-huh. you know, drinking the wrong Kool-Aid or anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, actually, the blog is a preparation for not one, but probably several books. Okay. A blog is, is a way to archive things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm archiving a huge amount of material, digesting and archiving all this material. And eventually, when I finish my dissertation, who knows when that's going to happen, <laughs> um, you know, which I'm in the last, I submitted my first, my final draft actually last month. So we'll see how it mm. goes. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, that's the point is that, you know, I'm, I'm archiving all this material and reflecting on it to eventually write probably several books, you know. I know um, this podcast could be several, some of the ideas that I'm like, oh, that'd be a good book. Oh, I'd read that. So <laughs> thank you. Excellent. So yeah, anything further? Are you feeling good or do you want to do another podcast next week? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I'm loving it. Yeah. I think there's a lot to get into, um, in terms of the politics of, um, the politics and the Dharma, you know, that's, this is like, and, and the thing is like, it's like, how do you even start to talk about it? We have to develop a language. We have to develop the concepts. It's like, it's not out there already for us to just like go to a website or pull a book off the shelf and say, okay, this is how you talk about Buddhism and economics. So this mm. is how you talk about Buddhism and, um, uh, you know, and race or, you know what I mean? Like those mm. books are just being written now, frankly, yeah. you know, like radical Dharma with, uh, Lama Rod Owens and, and um, Angel Kyoto Williams, mm-hmm. you know, like this is just, start, we're just starting to put this language together and it's going to feel awkward at first. It's going to feel like we kind of don't know what to say or how to say it, but that's, we have to do this work mm. because we have to develop a language for dealing with our social and environmental reality, you know? It's some, I mean, t- for me, just experiences that I've been having in terms of going outside of my own comfort zone in a lot of ways, it hurts. It's like embarrassing. It's gross. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's a lot of discomfort. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of like owning, mm-hmm. owning shit. And, mm-hmm. you know, but then after there comes that feeling of like, oh my gosh, you know, I was able to be an ear to that person's suffering, or I was mm-hmm. able to sit in that fire of like being grilled for, you know, what I contributed to, you know, uh, you know, my own shittiness or my own shitty behavior. And I don't know if mm-hmm. like we as humans like doing that, let alone, you know, you'd like to think as a Buddhist, like, oh yes, I've sat and I've transcended and I can, you know, look at, you know, an enemy and, and regard them with compassion and all of that. But Mm -hmm. I don't know if many of us are still quite, (laughs) you know, wanting to put ourselves out there. And it's essential. Yeah. It's like my friend Vance uh, uh, called me from, from Massachusetts and he's like, he's a, a, a gay friend of mine. who's just devastated. He's absolutely devastated by what it's happening with the Trump regime. He said the states are just in chaos right mm. now. And and he just needed somebody to talk to. Mm. He needed somebody to talk to about what he felt about the Trump regime and all the terrible things that were happening. Someone that would just hear him and understand. Mm. And, you know, and it's like, and not like uh, dharmicize it or mm. kind of like brush over it with a bunch of Buddhist scriptures or practices or just go meditate or something. But just listen to the pain, the confusion, and the anger that's coming from that. And 
you know, and it just, it just, it helped Vance and it helped me. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, this is really, really good that we talk to each other about how we feel about the situation. And it's you helpful, know. I think, as Buddhist teachers, like yeah. you mentioned Ethan Nickturn earlier, and I'm, you know, I'm following his Facebook feed, and it's like, I'm so glad that most mm-hmm. of what he's saying, I'm like, what? Like, you're feeling like you're on fire, too? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. You, you know, chill Buddhist guy, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it, it's good to see, because I think sometimes we put other teachers or or Buddhism in general on this pedestal of chill, loving kindness, you know, do your practices, mm. say your prayers, and you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense of him. He's like, I, I follow him on Twitter, and he's like confronting the situation. He lives in New York City, mm. so he's confronting the situation head on. And he's, at the same time that, that he's dealing with it, he's also blown away by it. So, but but he still is staying in it. Yeah. He's staying in it, and, and he's bringing mm. all that he knows about Buddhism into the situation and trying to be a support for other people and for, for the, the resistance for, for, you know, so, and, uh, there's a lot of other people too in Buddhism that are, are trying to like Buddhist peace fellowship is a really good mm. resource for that sort of thing. We do, it seems like every couple of months we've had a, 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 a zoom video call on something related to this. And it's just a support to be with other people that are dealing with this issue and to know that you're not alone, um, this, we're all in this together, we're helping each other, we're going to do this together, uh, it's tremendously supportive, yeah. I think on that note, that's probably the best place to close it out, is to know that, you know, like you said earlier, the interconnectedness and the ability for the internet to bring us closer together. If you don't have a sangha in your neighborhood, you know, you can definitely check out Sean's blog, Engage, mm-hmm. um, for information, you know, for comfort, uh, you know, find find people who mm-hmm. are kind of saying this, you know, this is not normal and uh, this is not right. And, you know, you're not alone. And, um, you know, look for mm-hmm. those beacons, I think. So I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to connect with you this afternoon. And, uh and yeah. here, I mean, you you kind of riled here. me up, but you also chilled me out. So I think that's you know one of those good 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 emotional states to be in is not too passive and not too freaked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great, great. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks I really so much, really appreciate talking to you too. And there you have it, episode two of Dharmage. If you would like to be a guest and hang out and chit-chat with me sometime, please get in touch, tanyamcg at gmail.com. I'd love to feature whatever it is you're doing, saying, thinking. So do get in touch and stay tuned. Until next time.